0: Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to do this whole chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 22. And we don't have a projector. You could pray that we can cast the demon of the computer out and that it starts communicating with our projector again. Um, But we'll be fine. I'll read it to you if you're... an audible learner, you can listen or you can, you can, you can hear, go along. 22, 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in their soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them and there were about 400 men with him this is verse 3 now if you're following along and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and he said to the king of Moab please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me Um, Moab um, David has family ties there His, his grandmother is Ruth a Moabitess probably that's why he went there and he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with, with him all the time that he was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Horeth. This is verse six. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. This has become The spear has now become a literary Prop to let you know what frame of mind Saul is in. He's having one of his fits. He's in one of his murderous things. That's that's what that is telling us. And all his servants, that's all his administration, were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me, No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as as at this day. This is classic spiritual authority abuse here, shame and honor culture, the the whole nine. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, To Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. And he said, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? In that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's, he's the king's son-in-law and captain over his bodyguard and honored in your house. Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? no. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, I Amalek, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. What a crazy sentence that is. Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not do it. They wouldn't put their hand out to strike the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman and child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep, he put them to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab named um, Abithar, escaped and fled after David. And Abithar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord, and David said to Abithar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house, Stay with me, don't be afraid, for he who seeks my life also seeks yours, and with me you'll be in safekeeping. That's the word of the Lord, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would guide us through this scripture, teach us what you want us to learn from this, and strengthen us as we go through our wilderness. Use this to give us courage to face this coming week or month or life ahead. We ask for your direction and your wisdom to discern what your spirit is saying through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through the life of David on Sunday mornings, and it's really, really super-duper incredibly important to keep something in mind when we're going through the life of David. Please remember this. The life of David in the Bible is really, the broader story is the story of how God made David king. That's the context of this whole overarching story, how God made David king, or you could say how God gave Israel a king after God's own heart. This is how it happened. David had been chosen, like so many others in God's redemptive plan before him, to bring perfect righteousness and judgment to bear on an evil world, to bear on the land. David is to reign a kingdom of a kingdom of God, a God-fearing generation of perfect righteousness and ju- and, and uh, justice. That's Second Samuel eight fifteen. We'll see later that that's what David's kingdom becomes known for. He's it's known for righteousness and judgment. Tzadikah mishpat in the Bible in the in the old er, in the Hebrew language. And speaking of his purpose. Uh, for choosing others, he chose Abraham, he chose the father of Israel in this for this particular purpose. You can look at Genesis chapter 18, God says, God's thinking about Abraham, and this is what he says, he says, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, how? By doing righteousness and justice on the earth. These two words, righteousness and justice, become a phrase throughout the Old Testament. These two words are always put together. They they go hand in hand. Sadaka mishpat, go hand in hand. The word righteousness, sadaka, it means to be right in all your relationships. Um, It means to be right with God. It means to be right with neighbor, with society. And it means to be right with yourself. It means rightness in all of your ways, in every, human, in every aspect of the human experience. It's the Bible's way of describing perfect health. It's what it means to be truly healthy in the biblical sense. It's to be healthy spiritually, mentally, psychologically, to be healthy relationally and socially. It encompasses all forms of health in your life. That's the first thing that Israel is to be known for, righteousness. The word justice, mishpat, It means to help. It means to love and advocate for those who are poor, who are oppressed, and who are weak, and to do so especially at great disadvantage to yourself. We've talked about this before, but that is the earmark of the Bible's version of justice. Biblical justice is to defend those who are defenseless, to defend the weak, to help those who are poor at great disadvantage to self. In other words, it should cost you something. There's sacrifice involved to make somebody else be lifted up, okay? It's loving and caring for the marginal at great cost for yourself. It's preferring others and using the blessings, talents, education, finances, whatever it is that that you've been blessed, that you've received to, to, to overflow that to a lost and broken world. That's the idea. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the world. That's the idea. I think that's probably what separates um, biblical blessing from maybe the American dream kind of blessing. We want to be blessed in America. We we like to hoard, we like to amass blessings for our own dynasty, our own legacy, our own self, our own thing right, individually. The Bible would say, no, you've been blessed and you've been given a lot. You've been given talent and education and resources and all sorts of things that you've been getting knowledge, so that you can dump out the resources that you've been given onto people that don't have it. That's the idea. And this is what it means to image Yahweh on the earth. We've talked about this before, that we are humans, are imago Dei. That's both a noun and a verb. We are the image of God, and we are to image God. How do we do it? By standing out on the street corner and preaching? Oh, maybe sometimes. Mostly, though, it's by doing righteousness and justice on the earth. It's by being right with God, with others, and with yourself. That flows all from being right with God. And it's about loving your neighbors, dumping yourself into society, being present, the people of God have both been made right and are moving toward rightness with God, with others, and with self. That's what it means. And we are using the blessings that we've, been, that we've received from God to bring justice to every place our foot would step. Do you understand that? To every neighborhood that you reside in, to wherever you work, to every job that you occupy, to wherever you're at, you are to bring this quality of life this rightness and justice to wherever you go. This is what it means that when the Bible says, may our, our feet be shod with peace, wherever our feet would tread, that territory would now belong to Yahweh's kingdom. We are images set up to bear witness to him. Now, God has done this historically by choosing and anointing specific leaders to represent him and establish his kingdom a kingdom that's marked with a whole culture of righteousness and justice. That's the idea. That a, God's culture, the culture of his kingdom would be marked with this. God chose Adam and Eve. Remember what he told them to do. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. In other words, raise a God-fearing culture. A God-fearing generation that would take over the earth and bring the kingdom of God to wherever they go. That's, that is a mandate to parents. Why do we have kids? why what what are we doing with those kids we're raising them to be a god-fearing generation that would wherever they would go they are bringing or seeking righteousness and justice wherever they go martin luther king said that our children are ambassadors to a future we will never see that's exactly right that's what that's what genesis 1 is getting at Um, and he repeated, and you see, you know, the Bible, remember, it's on repeat. It is progressive, recursive meditation literature, which means themes will come back around, and they will, they will gain more momentum as they move forward. He repeats this cultural mandate to Noah in Genesis chapter 1. Remember the flood? So in, in uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 1, what do we see covering the earth? Water. In Genesis chapter 9, what do we see again covering the earth? water and we see noah a new adam given the same mandate be fruitful and multiply cover the earth that's the bible's coming back around again and adding momentum to this whole thing and this was certainly the idea of the calling of abraham as well and then also of moses um literarily speaking egypt in a literary sense the exodus specifically uh uh, Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 15 are surrounded, both bookended, by water. So again, we've got this, and water meaning judgment and death and also salvation, just like Noah's flood. Remember in Exodus chapter 1, what was the waters of death? Pharaoh telling the infants, or telling the people to throw, throw uh, Hebrew boys into the Nile, into the watery, their watery grave. And chapter 15 He leads them through, God leads them through the Red Sea, judgment for Pharaoh and Israel, or excuse me, but salvation for Israel, see? The same, again, the Bible's coming back around. It's coming back around. And he tells Moses the same thing. Moses was to establish Israel as a nation. And now God is choosing a king to lead this nation, a king unlike any other king who would not rule for himself, but would rule for Yahweh, establishing righteousness and justice in Israel and eventually the entire world. That's the story of David. That's how it fits into the, large, um, the larger redemptive historical plot of the Bible. He is another new Adam coming to rule to bring God's kingdom. And this is how the story of David fits in. David's story is the story of how God made him king. And we know that David, ha- we know that David has the heart for it, He's already been called a man after God's own heart, but there are still valuable lessons that he needs to learn in order to be trained to lead the way God wants him to lead. And there are things in David that need to be um, rubbed off, edged away, sanctified, chiseled away. So God uses the evil... (laughs) and murderous rage and jealousy of King Saul to refine David into the leader that he has been destined to be. In the episode before us today, as we see some of the things that God requires to make David king, um, we'll see also what he's doing and what he requires of us, what he's doing to shape us into who, we, who he wants you to be. A few things that, that God requires of David in the wilderness, one is faith, great faith. To get through your wilderness, you are going to need a tremendous amount of faith. Okay, that's number one. Secondly, other people. He's going to put other people around you that you're going to need, and other people are going to need you to get through the wilderness, right? And thirdly, it's going to require a tremendous amount of sacrifice. That maybe even seems pointless in the moment. Okay, a tremendous amount of sacrifice, suffering that maybe even sounds seems pointless. Fun, fun, wilderness, pain, sacrifice, blood, death. Let's get in. This is good. God requires faith. Number one, the wilderness. Um, here's what I will say about this: the wilderness both demands faith. Listen to this, and serves to re- to reveal. How much faith you already have? I'm gonna say that again, just in case you're taking notes. Super important. The wilderness both demands faith and serves to reveal how much faith you already have. We can see in David's case that the wilderness is brutal. It's confusing. We talked about that last week. Remember when he uh, David had to lie to um, a. Ahibosheth, to, to save him from King Saul, even though we just found out in this chapter it's not gonna work. But David comes into the priest city of Nob, oh, excuse me, Ahimelech, and Ahimelech says, hey, what are you doing here? And David comes up with this big lie in order to protect him. That's sometimes life. In normal life, don't lie. But there are extraordinary times. Let me give you an example. Um, someone comes in these doors this morning, with a, a gunman, comes in these doors this morning and says, tell me where all the infants are. I put to you that it is our moral responsibility at that point to lie to that guy. That's an extraordinary wilderness moment, right? Sometimes we find... So the wilderness is confusing. I, I, Dietrich Bonhoeffer... Uh, You know, if you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II, German Christian leader in the midst of World War II, who took part actively in leading an assassination attempt against his own leader, Hitler, and he argued that it was his moral Christian duty to do so. Normal life circumstances? Yes, pretty good. Yeah, don't lie, be truthful. But every once in a while, there are things that happen in the wilderness that are gray, that are messy that don't fit our our norms. We have to use great wisdom in moments like that. David finds himself, that's, that's the wilderness, man. It's brutal. It's unfair. It's a place that brings things he was promised and hoping into serious doubt and question. Right? God promised him and even anointed him to be king back in chapter 16. He then fell, I mean, think what happened. He then fell into the good graces of the current king, And his son Jonathan. Jonathan even conceded his rightful place as heir apparent to David. He took off his robe and gave it to David. David then becomes the king's son in law. No doubt David is thinking, This is how God's doing this. He's anointed me king. I see what's happening here. He's put me on this path. Jonathan's already conceded it to me. Praise the Lord, this is how it's working. But now, all of that has soured. A huge twist, he's on the run, he's now an enemy of the state, he's separated from his wife and seemingly a million miles away from what what he thought God had promised. Surely, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that David in the wilderness is tempted to doubt all that he thought was true. It would be completely understandable for him to question all that he thought God had promised. Maybe Samuel got it wrong. Maybe he was thinking that. Maybe Samuel got it wrong. Maybe he came into the wrong town. I mean, does Samuel even have authority to declare me king anyway? Maybe I shouldn't have listened to Samuel. Maybe he should have brought that by the current king, Saul first. Maybe I got my hopes up when he, Maybe you know, maybe I was foolish to think that someone as poor and lowly as me could be king. What was I thinking? But those are not the thoughts that the text records of David. That's not what we see. David goes to Moab to seek shelter for his parents because he knows that they're probably not up for a life in the wilderness, a life on the run, being hunted, sleeping in caves and stuff like that. So, he seeks refuge for his parents, and while he's there, the text records a, an incredible line that he says to the king of Moaz. It's just this remarkable statement of faith. Let me read it to you. David went up there to, Miz, to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king, please let my father and my mother stay with you, listen to this, till I know what God will do for me. Until I know. What an... A remarkable statement and an incredible description of what of the stuff of real faith the stuff of biblical faith notice the quality and its balance on the one hand faith like this the stuff of biblical faith is aware of hardship and problems did you catch that in the phrase I till I know in other words I don't know what God is doing right now if there's a realism There's something in the stuff of biblical faith that doesn't put its head in the sand, that feels the pain and grieves the griefs, that's okay being confused, that admits and is honest that God, I don't know what's going on, I don't know what you're doing right now. But on the other hand, he is certain that God is doing something. And David can hold both of those things in the space of true faith. Both um, uncertainty, questions and doubt, and great certainty in faith. On the one extreme, David is not in denial. Sometimes in our culture, we tend to think that faith, especially in Christianity today, that faith means to deny that anything is wrong at all, to not talk about anything hard. I've been treated before, when I've talked about hard things, I've been treated like I have a great lack of faith. I remember put, that being put on me before. Come on, put your faith in God, Mike. And I'm like, I'm just acknowledging that I'm hurting. I'm just acknowledging confusing confusion. We see this in David and all, and all throughout. David is not in denial We advocate for a faith sometimes that never feels pain, isn't able to grieve or feel disappointment and hurt, and we label that as holy and the way it should be. This kind of faith even regards it to be sin to acknowledge that anything is wrong or that you're in pain. But on the other hand, the other extreme, David is not wallowing in uncertainty or despair uh, that the wilderness can bring. He doesn't let it define him. That's the line. On the other hand, he doesn't define himself by, oh, woe is me. I'm the one that God hates. I'm the one that that nothing ever goes right for me. I'm cursed. He's not letting his present circumstances define who he is before God. He's not defeated in this. You can see the same balance in the New Testament. Let me read to you Hebrews 11.1. You know this verse. It's a famous one. Now faith... Is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. Do you you hear the balance again? First, inherent in the stuff of, of stuff of true faith is an honesty, an honesty that you don't currently see the things that you're hoping to see. I'm really hoping for this, and I don't see it. Therefore. Language, here's some language, therefore language like, this sucks, where are you God, I'm feeling really disappointed, I don't know what you're doing, I'm completely demoralized, that language is not only included, but necessary biblically for language of true faith. That is the stuff of true faith. We need not be threatened by that kind of language. That's the stuff of real faith. But certainty is the second ingredient in the stuff of true faith. This is the grit and the stubbornness of true faith. It's, a, it's a, just a stubbornness. This is the kind of faith of, of Abraham where Romans 4, 18 says, Abraham believed against hope. It meant he stubbornly believed. I was talking to uh, someone from our church the other day. I don't think she would mind me sharing this. She was going through tremendous health problems. I, and I mean, Horrific, and, and not just one, but over and over and over and over and over again. Successive to the point where, she, and she said to me, the reason I'm a Christian is due to my sheer stubbornness to hold on, even though everything is screaming at me, that it doesn't make sense, it's senseless, there's nothing good that can come out of this. She said, the only reason I'm here is because of sheer determination and grit and stubbornness in the hope of God. And she said, she followed up and she said, and now I'm closer to God than I've ever been. That's what we're talking about. This is the kind of faith that gets us through, that holds on, it's got teeth in it. Now, where did David get that kind of faith? Where did he get it? Well, I propose to you that it was when he was tending the sheep. That's what I think. I don't think it was just necessarily there. I think he'd been storing it up. Let me read to you Psalm 78. This is about David, not written by him, but written, Psalm 78, uh, verse 70 through 72. It says, God chose David his servant, and he took him from the sheepfolds. David had a life with God, a regular, interactive, devotional life with God, tending sheep when no one else was looking. From following the nursing ooze, he brought him to, sh- to shepherd Jacob, his people. In other words, what he learned there came in handy later. Israel, his inheritance, with an, and what did he get when he was there? With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hands. True faith is, what, here's what I want to, here's what I really want to get at you. True faith is stored up in faithful devotion, like putting money away to draw on in emergencies. I, I learned this when my friend Dave Barnhart, um, and you guys might remember him, he came and spoke when we were meeting at Calvary Ballard. Dave Barnhart had a, um, a brain tumor, probably growing in him since he was a child, unknowingly. And a few Christmases ago, he collapsed, and they took him to the hospital, and they found this huge brain tumor in his head. And I'll never forget that night in the hospital. We were visiting uh, Nicole's folks in California, and I called Dave in the hospital in Portland. And here's what he said to me. He said, "He goes, Mike, I'm all alone. Everyone has left. No one's allowed to be here now. My family's gone. I'm by myself." And he started crying and he goes, and I want you to know, it works. He goes, all of the devotions I did, all of the, dis- the spiritual disciplines, all of the formational reading, all of the prayers, all of the retreats, all of the solitude, he said it was, he, he said it was like putting money in an emergency account. And now that I'm here, I looked in the account and I've got plenty to draw on. I feel God's presence and I feel his faith. And then he says this to me. He said, Mike, well, this will come into our next point. He said, Mike, um, I've got to show my kids how to live well. He goes, now I get to teach them how to die well. Mm -hmm. True faith is stored up in faithful devotion when David was a boy out tending the sheep, just him and God, he worshipped, he prayed, he communed with God in his heart, and this is where it came up later. And and I, um, I'm uh, shameless plug. I'm working on a sermon series that will lead us through the classic spiritual rhythms and disciplines of the classic church that I'm hoping that you can adopt into your own life for this very reason. Um, we were. I was talking with some friends this morning that spiritual rhythms, habits, disciplines are like the trellis that holds up the vine of your spiritual life. It's very important for you to be able. Otherwise, your your spiritual life will collapse on itself and won't have the elevation to grow and to breathe and get the nutrients it needs. The spiritual rhythms are so important, and will come in handy when you when you do hit your wilderness experience. You'll have something to draw on, but it starts. Now you don't have to wait for that sermon series to start making it a point to spend time with God in prayer daily. Read the word of God. Retreat, Get away. Have times of solitude and prayer. Yeah, Kristen. Psalms 78, 70 through20. Uh, 70 through 72. Yeah, good yeah, thank you for asking that. True faith is stored up. And you can start it now. Okay, that's number one. Your wilderness, you cannot survive the wilderness. You cannot survive the wilderness. It'll just make you bitter. Not everyone, you guys, not everyone survives the wilderness. Have you noticed that? Um, I am so blessed to have people here in this room from my youth group that Dave and I labored at that youth group for 19 years working that ground. And I'm so blessed to have people here that come to our church either now permanently or to pop in from time to time who are still the fruit of that labor. But I have to tell you, about 80% of all that work are, are people who are not walking with Jesus now. It's crazy. Why? Is it their fault? Well, it's complicated. It's a wilderness thing. David had his own misadventures. He had a lot of fault in his wilderness experiences. But a lot of it, I'll say one thing that we need to get through is this this stuff of true faith. Real faith. You have to have it. You have to have it or the wilderness will eat us alive. Secondly, um, it requires tremendous, tremendous amounts of sacrifice. Tremendous amounts of sacrifice. This story here, the massacre of Nob, This priestly city, the city of priests, at the hands of a megalomaniac named Saul, seems so utterly pointless, and in some ways, it certainly is. It certainly is. It's not fair that because of a madman's jealousy and his lust for power, innocent people, and in this case, tragically, we're talking about men, women, children, and infants they lose their lives because of a man's selfishness. It's easy to think, I wonder how many of you are thinking of Vladimir Putin right about, right about now, who, because of his wants to seize land, is bringing his country and the world into such peril right now because of his pride and disregard for human life. Ahimelech, the priest, in this story, he innocently provides, this priest innocently provides David with provisions for the wilderness not knowing that David was at odds with Saul, and those provisions that he gave to David end up costing him, him, his family, and his entire city their lives. The wilderness of life is filled, if you have not noticed, with this kind of suffering. Um, In fact, it's now been documented that Pointless or uh, so-called senseless suffering is the most traumatic kind of suffering that we endure in this, this experience called life because we have no, our brains have no place to categorize it. We're, we're purpose-driven people, so we're looking for purpose to make it well, to justify the sacrifices that we've given. We need to know that there's a reason, that there's a purpose for it. And when there's no reprieve or purpose or closure that justifies our losses, the human brain doesn't know where to put that. We don't know what to do with that kind of thing. And it causes mental illness, an amazing amount of mental tension. Think of the loss in Florida in the wake, wake of Hurricane Ian right now. Entire towns and cities literally gone. By the, when I was writing this sermon, it was 40 people dead. I think it's much more than that now. Or think of the the mom who gets some rare disease and dies leaving her husband and three children without a wife or a mother. That is the wilderness that we're in. We see things like this. We even experience things like this in life and it seems utterly senseless. And, And yet, here's what's so comforting. It is actually this kind of suffering that the Bible pays particular attention to. Did you know that? The Bible talks to the, especially read the book of Job, is the famous one, whole book dedicated. In fact, several times throughout God's redemptive history, especially when God is either about to or right after or right in the middle of initiating a new phase in his redemptive plan. Have you noticed this? What is the Bible? It is recursive, progressive meditation literature. So right or after or in the middle of initiating a new phase of his plan, there is recorded some kind of counteroffensive of evil or, or of some sort that requires major sacrifice on the, on the point of God's people. Let me give you, let's let start at the beginning. God creates Adam and Eve to worship him in his presence and Sabbath rest, complete fulfillment. And from that relationship, they're to spread God's kingdom throughout the earth. And chapter 3, Nahash, the snake, shows up to shut it down. Exodus chapter 1, when Israel was growing as a nation, they're being incubated as slaves to the nation of Egypt, God's bringing Moses, and because of the threat that they caused, the Pharaoh of Egypt commands that every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, infanticide. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Here we are. What is God doing in the, midst of, in the midst of that senseless evil in Egypt? In the midst of it, he's bringing about a savior to lead Israel out. Moses would be the one that God chose to lead them out of complete slavery. And God, so God used the evil of this Pharaoh for his own good purposes. He turns it into something redemptive. God used that event that senseless act of an evil man to send Moses into Pharaoh's own house by having Pharaoh's own daughter find him and bring him up there from the, from the, from the Nile. Here we are in David's life. God is raising up another savior, another leader. Here we, the Bible's coming back around. Here we are. He's raising up another savior, not just a nation but a new leader, David, who would lead them out of the evil both within, King Saul, and without. Peace on all the other nations around him but evil is not just going to evil is not just, we see this over and over again in the bible evil is not just going to roll over and let and let these people have it without a fight Saul's not just going to roll over and hand the kingdom to David as much as David would have loved that he launches a murderous counter attack on God's plan really against God did you see the text Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Yikes! And as a result, Ahimelech has to sacrifice himself in order to give life-saving provision to David. This is the wilderness. This is the wilderness we're in. Without Ahimelech's priestly provision, David would not have lasted long on his own in the wilderness. He would have never became king. Saul would have remained king, and only God knows the incalculable damage he would have wrought on that nation. And without David, there is no son of David. You know that. The sacrifice of Ahimelech, here's my point. Without David, there is no son of David. Therefore, the sacrifice of Ahimelech, it might have seemed meaningless, but it was pregnant with meaning. It meant everything in God's redemptive plan. God used it to bring redemption by installing David on the throne. Speaking of the son of David, the Bible's coming back around when Jesus came. Remember? Matthew chapter one. What happened? A murderous, jealous, evil king killed all boys two and under in Bethlehem. The king came and, and evil doesn't just roll over. Jesus has to flee into Egypt. But like in David's case, without the sacrifice of the children in Bethlehem, the king of kings would not have made the ultimate sacrifice on the cross to redeem the world. It meant something. It meant something. In Jesus, the son of David enters into our suffering and suffers himself to give us life. That's the rhythm of the redemptive story. Death brings life, and death brings life, and sacrifice brings redemption. Therefore, Christians understand a few things about suffering, unlike any other religion and unlike any other philosophy. Number one, everything has meaning, even suffering that seems senseless. Everything has meaning. We have a place in our brains to put this. We have a context for the suffering that we're going through. In fact, for the Christian, listen to this, the presence of so-called senseless evil is the very proof, biblically, that God is doing something redemptive and healing. Because from page one, page three, we see a counterattack. God works, he moves into a formless and void world to bring form and inhabitation, and Satan comes in counterattacks. It's the rhythm of the Bible, and it seems so senseless. Therefore, when senseless things happen in our lives, we go, okay, God, what are you doing? I mean, I hope you don't mind, Liz. I'm going to use you as an example because why not? I, 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 we've been checking in with Liz. Liz has, the reason we're doing meals for the Angles, for those of you that don't know, is Liz has Hodgkin's lymphoma. And she's going through chemo and she's experiencing and Dan has tremendous strain on him. He's working his job, taking care of the kids, trying to do all of these things, just a tremendous amount. So we're trying to ease their burden by providing meals for them. I would I would I beg you to do it. I beg you to bring a frozen meal for them to put in their thing. Liz has shown tremendous amount of the stuff of faith. And the other day she said to me, Almost a David line, I don't know what God is doing, but He must be up to something. I feel extremely demoralized. And I thought, that's the stuff of faith right there. It's real, but it's certain at the same time. God must be doing something. Dan, that same week, Dan's grandma died. He had to fly back home to see his grandma. After that, her grandma's caught in Hurricane Ian. It's one thing after another for that family, and yet Liz comes forth and she says, God must be doing something, but man, it's hard. That's exactly right, Liz. That's exactly right. In fact, for the Christian, so-called senseless evil is the very proof that God is doing something redemptive. Secondly, we celebrate, Christians celebrate the sacrifices of those who have made redemption possible, not just the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Don't get me wrong, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and we celebrate that. But a lot of others have sacrificed before him and because of him continue to sacrifice today for the gospel to go out because we get the cruciform rhythm of redemption on the earth. How do we evangelize, how do we affect Seattle? By dying to ourselves and sacrificing ourselves. How do you redeem your marriage? How do you parent your kids? How do you be a, a source of, of, of sadaka mishpat at your work? Through self-sacrifice, because you believe that death will bring life. So we celebrate the sacrifices, we have a, Christianity has a rich history of sacrifices being made. You know, the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. And it goes on today. Here in our city, but oh gosh, especially abroad in second, third world places where you're in another country right now, there are congregations meeting that at any point, police could come through those doors and lock them all up and persecute them just for doing what we're doing right now. Massive sacrifice. Third, Therefore, your sacrifice of suffering means everything. God is using it. Whatever's going on in your life. And here, I'm talking, let me just say this. I am talking to a suffering church. There is a lot of suffering in our congregation right now. And here's what I want to say. We're in the wilderness, and I want to say, God is using it whether you understand it or not whether you can see it or not whether it makes sense or not it brings his kingdom his life through our suffering and through our death this suffering is there is there for precisely because of his plan and god will use the evil that happens for his glory so finally don't waste it don't waste your suffering Don't look back someday and say, man, I wish I would have suffered better. Like my friend Dave Barnhart who said, I've taught my kids how to live well. Now I get to teach them how to die well. What was he doing? He was saying, I'm gonna use the suffering for God's glory. I'm I'm gonna capitalize on this for God's glory. Don't waste the gift of suffering that God has given to you. Finally, God brings David people. The suffering of the wilderness gives David access to a whole lot different demographic of people. Have you noticed that people in the wilderness, they, ban, they, they, have you noticed they, have you noticed that you're drawn to people in the wilderness, whether you've even known their story or not? Or, and you're drawn to people that you, you know, you know what it means to have pain. There's a camaraderie there. You'll find that with Josh Nor. He's a. For such a young age, he's gone through a lot for his age, and you'll find a a deep wisdom and camaraderie that he's gained from all of his life. Painful times. But there's a depth. There's an approachability. These are people that are coming to David who are in distress. That's what it says. David knows what it's like now to be in distress. He would not have had access to these people before. And they're bitter of soul, and these are the only people that can come to David at this point, because all the rest are with Saul, and to risk their reputation would be suicide. And isn't that true with Jesus? Listen, why are we here surrounding? Why, why did you come today? Why are you here? Why is church on a Sunday a priority? You're going to leave today, and you're going to see people doing, in Seattle, doing a whole bunch of other things on their Sunday that you might think, man, that, like to go out to eat, I'd like to ride my bike, I'd like to whatever. Why are you here? Why do some of you commute from Renton or wherever you're commuting from? A lot of you are commuters. Why? Well, it's because we're gathering around a captain, Jesus, who knows what a wilderness is like. He knows what suffering is like, and he used it to save us. He gets us, And in the same way, people will be drawn to you because of your pain. I'll end with one more anecdote of my own. I grew up without a father. My mother and my uh, dad, they met in the army. My dad had another family. And he, he and my mom decided to have an affair. And I came out of that. And my dad went back to, they're from the Bronx, New York, and he went back and I never saw him or heard him or ever again. And that caused a tremendous amount of pain in my life. More than what I have time to share. Tremendous amount. I remember one time I was driving and I was in so much emotional pain that I had to pull over my car. Have you ever been in that kind of emotional pain not physical pain where you can't function anymore that's what it was i had to pull over my car i remember i was staring out the windshield i couldn't even see because the tears were in my eyes and i said i thought lord that you were going to heal me of this (laughs) i was thinking that you were going to put an end to this at some point like kind of like cauterizing a wound and it's done and I got this, I don't say this often, I hope you know that, I, I, I got a vision from God. I don't like to throw that stuff around flippantly. I really did, do believe this was a vision from God. I saw an airplane and I saw a soldier coming off the airplane who had a prosthetic leg. And I, I remember hearing God's voice to my heart say, Mike, I'm gonna heal you in the sense that I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it bearable for you to keep going on in life but it'll never be quite like having a leg. Because you need your pain. And then I remember God asked me this. This is a question from God. He said, if if I told you that I will use your pain to help other people, would you keep it? Everything, I'd love to tell you how spiritual I was. Everything in me was saying no. I I was right. This was not romantic. I was feeling it in this moment. And I wanted to say, "Uh uh-uh, but I said yes. I said, yeah, it was that grit in that moment that okay, I'm gonna do this stubbornly, yes. And that has been, the, I think, one of the keys to my ministry. I think that's why a young man like Josh felt welcome in my office. Not because I'm, but because I get it. I've been through pain. I've been through adventures and misadventures and I've lived with it and God has used it in my life to captain other people as I follow my captain. I think the same question goes out to you in the wilderness right now. We're all the, the wilderness is the Bible's metaphor for this life for everybody. I think that question goes to you. If you know that God will redeem this pain in your life and help other people, Will you do it? Will you keep it? Will you not waste it? Will you let him use it for his glory to bring resurrection to others? <sighs> you are our captain. And Lord, even though I know, I don't know why there seems to be so much senseless pain and suffering here in the wilderness. I don't know why you would allow it. I don't know what you're, I don't really get it all the time. I know what it's not. It's not that you don't love us. You're doing something. Lord, give us the stuff of faith. Give us the bravery to feel the pain but the grit and the certainty to hold on to hope all the more.